Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we are going to revisit the international order, or what's left of it, and talk about what's been going on since we were last there. So that means Iran, Israel, Korea, NATO, Europe, America, Helen, Aaron, Chris, help. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. So to try and help us make sense of this all, we have got Helen Thompson. It's a pleasure to welcome back Aaron Rapport. Chris Bickerton's here with us too. I thought we should probably start with Iran, which may be the biggest part of this whole story. And Helen, correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory, when we talked about Obama's legacy and what we admired and didn't admire about the Obama administration, and you have mixed feelings about Obama's record. But the thing that you said you really did admire was the Iran deal, Mm. what used to be called the Iran deal. So do you regret its passing? I don't know whether I regret its passing, but I do know that I've changed my mind about, not for the first time, because I recall that I gave that answer to you after you'd pressed me a few weeks before, and I'd said healthcare and then changed my mind to the nuclear deal, and now I'm changing my mind (laughs) again. I think that one thing that is clear, regardless of what one thinks about the content of it, that it now is obvious that it was not something that in terms of domestic American politics was very secure because of the fact it was done by executive agreement and it wasn't done by treaty. So actually it's proved extremely easy in sheer domestic American political terms, not the international aspects of it for Trump to undo this. So regardless of what one thinks of the the content or not, it wasn't actually a robust achievement. Okay, but let's talk about the content then. Do you regret the passing of that deal and what it meant for international order? I think the problem is this. I don't think it's really a question about whether one regrets it or not. I think the problem is, is that the international circumstances in which it came to pass were very quickly bypassed by events. So that the final deal was agreed in July of 2015 and then in September of 2015 Putin took Russia into Syria and essentially changed the facts on the ground in Syria such that there was no prospect of the Assad regime being removed from power and that was going to mean that the Iranian military was going to remain in Syria and that meant that a context in which you might have said that Iranian influence in the region was diminishing has completely dissipated because Putin has been willing to use both Russian military power in Syria and Russian diplomatic influence to court this alliance with not only Assad but with Iran. That means that the security predicaments looked at from Israel's point of view are not what they were when the agreement was struck. So regardless of what one thinks about what happened in the summer of 2015, the circumstances that made it possible for an American administration to say Iranian influence is on the wane in the region are 
they don't exist anymore. So, so when events change, you change your mind, which is what people are meant to do. Yeah, but unfortunately for me, that I said what I said after September 2015, so that doesn't really cut it. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Aaron, so we've now got um, Pompeo has kind of issued this new set of like the things that would have to happen mm. for us to work with this regime, which in a sense reflect all of these changed circumstances. Iran has to get out of Syria. There has to be a complete not actual regime change, but a complete change of the way that the Iranians are currently right. behaving in the region. So what's going on there? What's the Pompeo doctrine now? Is it regime change? It might not be explicitly regime change, but all the parts of it point in that direction. Because it's that's an impossible list of demands. Well, that's right. So from a bargaining theorist perspective, right, you'd say that the bargaining space is a null set, right? There are literally no overlapping preferences now between the United States and Iran. Or if there are some overlapping preferences, they can't nearly be compensated for by all the differences between the two actors. Here's the difference between perspectives, as I see it, from the American perspective and from the Israeli perspective, and from a lot of the Gulf Arab states' perspective as well, especially Saudi Arabia. Iran is a rising potentially hegemonic actor in the Middle East. Now, Steve Walt recently said, and I agree with this, anybody who thinks that you can have a single actor kind of control the Middle East as a hegemon, a really fractious, heavily armed, they're idiots, pretty much, right? I mean, Saudi Arabia can't even handle the poorest country in the region, you know, one of the poorest countries in the region, Yemen. But from this perspective, right, Iran has offensive intentions and is a real threat. From Iran's perspective, it's playing defense, so it almost lost Bashar al-Assad, its key ally and a conduit to Hezbollah, which is a way of checking Israel in Levant. The hardliners were not at all happy in Iran with the nuclear deal, right? They saw this as a weakening of the Iranian position. And now if you ask Iran, well, you've got to stop your ballistic missile testing, right? They see that's their mo most robust deterrent that they have against Israel and Gulf Arab states. So you're basically asking them to become defenseless. And at the same time, right, by abiding by all these demands, you're basically asking them to also delegitimize themselves in the eyes of a great amount of the population and political elites in the country, because the country since 1979 has been founded on the basis of resistance to the United States and the West more generally. So yeah, delegitimize yourselves and basically drop your shield and your sword, right? That's the Iranian perspective. So that, these are both non-starters. So if they're non-starters, what happens? You can say to people, do the impossible, they can't do the impossible, but it doesn't follow from that. Therefore, they fall on their swords. So what right. happened? Well, it's harder to say because as complicated as it just was, I was talking about all these different actors in the Middle East. These aren't the only actors that matter too. So a lot also then falls on how much confidence, and right now I'm not so sure how much confidence there is amongst Iranians in uh, the credibility of the EU as a supporter of the Iran deal, especially right the commercial aspects of it. Now, there was this blocking legislation that was passed that's supposed to encourage EU firms that had deals in Iran or were working on deals in Iran to go through with those. But as people point out, right, when you have to choose between the Iranian market and the U.S. market, it's a little bit of a no-brainer there. The other possibility, right, is how much China and Russia are going to be committed to supporting Iran now that the United States has basically totally jumped out of the previous regime's JCPOA deal. Going back to Helen's point about how, yeah, the, the domestic foundations of the JCPOA were really shaky, I think the Obama administration probably didn't appreciate that enough. But at the same time, they were putting all their chips on the idea, right, that the political costs internationally, in terms of splitting the United States off from its EU allies and forcing Iran closer to Russia and China and giving those countries more influence, right, that that would be too much for a next regime to swallow if it wasn't Hillary Clinton. So, so the regime change was actually in the United yeah. States. Chris, <laughs> exactly. 
point. There are so many different parts to this. I think we should come back in a second to Israel, because, of course, one of the other things that's happened since we last talked about the international order is the Americans opened their embassy in Jerusalem and there was terrible bloodshed in Gaza. On the EU question, does Europe, do you think, have the leadership or the political identity to carve off a separate space for itself and to continue in some sense with this arrangement with Iran? The short answer to that, I think, is no. Whenever the EU is involved in some of these quite big sort of international questions, there's always a kind of Groundhog Day quality to it. You feel as if the Europeans are in a kind of time loop. So the EU, this is a crossroads. The EU can consolidate itself, take a common foreign policy position where it very firmly tries to distance itself from the change in the US's policy, retrieve what it can of a deal which was a massive success story for the EU's high representative in foreign policy, a real publicity stunt for the EU as a foreign policy actor. So it's at a crossroads. But we've been at so many different crossroads and always people ask exactly the same question. Is this the time where the European Union can finally step up and be a global foreign policy actor in the way that it is a global economic actor? And time and again, the answer is... Well, no, not really, or yes, a little bit. So is there anything different about now? Uh, Macron? Exactly. So maybe this time, you know, and again, this is another cliche, this time is different. Mm. I cut my teeth as a graduate student on EU foreign policy 15 years ago. People were saying this time is different then. The Iraq war, this time is different. So there's always a sense of expectation. I mean, things are different now, I think... um, For the European Union, this is a dramatic change because it really was important in brokering that deal. It really was very central. And so one of its main foreign policy achievements has just been pulled away. And the EU has never been treated with the relative contempt that the Trump administration is signalling through this action, has it? Or do you think it was... Well, I mean, under the Bush administration, uh, I'm not thinking. Well, that's old Europe. Remember that comment? Uh, I do remember. It's pretty common that sort of Europe is seen as. You know, it talks the talk, but it never really delivers in foreign policy. So I think US administrations successively have been rather doubtful about the EU's ability to step up. But it is true that you've had a succession of calls for the EU to militarise, for the EU to properly invest in its own military security, which has reached a kind of crescendo. And so the US, if you like, abandonment of Europe as a serious geopolitical actor fits with that. And it's just the sentiment, I suppose, that the Europeans have to stand up and do something or not, but it's really up to them. Um, The US isn't going to constantly step in. There are a lot of moving parts to this. Europe is one of them. The domestic political situation within Iran is another important one. So lots of moving parts. My guess is that on the European side, there won't be a decisive movement to try and intervene in some way that that fills this, this void. I don't think that the European Union as a collective actor is going to do anything in response to this. I actually think that the European Union as a collective actor, or even the EU3, were rather less important to the deal in the first place than they would like to think that they were. What could happen is is that some hard choices now confront Angela Merkel, and she might actually make them as opposed to kicking them into touch, because you could see the possibility of making some grand bargain over this, whereby... She works with Putin to encourage him to encourage Iran to remove all its military forces out of Syria. And indeed, in the last few days, he has made remarks suggesting that he wants to see all foreign forces out of Syria. And one of his spokespersons afterwards clarified that that did include Iran. She could, I think, reach some accommodation with Trump over the 
threatened trade sanctions about aluminium and steel that the EU has an exemption from until I think it's the 1st of June. Mm -hmm. And she could possibly, though I don't think that she is willing to do this, compromise over Nord Stream 2, where the Trump administration has been making a lot of belligerent noises towards Germany's participation in that over the last few weeks. So there is, if you like, a scope, I think, particularly for a German-US deal... That involves Merkel making some hard choices of like how she thinks or how her government thinks about Germany's position in the world. That has not been her style thus far. Her style has been to micromanage problems. So if she's actually going to face up to this moment of choice for Germany, then that would be a a really significant departure. And Aaron, one of the things that cuts across this is the rumbling question about contributions to NATO and the American perspective that the Europeans in general and the Germans in particular have never met their obligations. And Angela Merkel did say something a couple of weeks ago along the lines of fair cop, we never have and we probably never will. We're not going to get to 2%. There is, I think, a NATO summit coming up in July. Yeah, Is that going to be a barrier to any of this? I mean, that that's from the start of the Trump administration. That's always been one of the big potential rifts that he just thinks that America is carrying too much weight in this. So if if Europe is thinking about carving out a separate foreign policy and a separate security policy, is that not going to lead to a collision course over NATO and contributions? Well, the kind of dispute over how much money the European NATO members should be putting into their defense budgets doesn't just start with the Trump administration, right? You have this in the Obama administration, you have this in the Bush administration, you have this in the Clinton administration. It's a pretty constant refrain in U.S. foreign policy. It doesn't really take into account a couple of things, which is one, just structurally, this is one of the paradoxes of power, right? If the United States has the means and it's demonstrated that it has the will to try to enforce collective security around the globe, then you're just basically going to encourage a lot of free riding. It's going to cost. Right. So the United States never kind of looks at itself and says, oh, yeah, you're kind of, you know, Uncle Sam, Uncle Sucker, right? That's one of these things. So the United States doesn't really appreciate, I don't think, oftentimes the structural kind of factors here that lead to this. And just to be clear, because you're right, of course, it's a bit like what I was saying to Chris about contempt, and then you remind me, well, (laughs) it doesn't all start with Trump. Mm -hmm. But there's always this feeling that Trump means it. I mean, there's just this feeling Well, everybody meant it. Trump is just so impolitic in the way that he states it. He he does not like being a sucker. I mean, he really does not like being a sucker. Well, he really doesn't like being a sucker. And the big difference I see between Trump and previous administrations, it's not right that they didn't have this complaint before. It's that partially previous administrations, their concerns could be somewhat offset by the recognition that the Europeans, for lack of a better word, you know, they exercise a certain amount of soft power through peacekeeping, through NGOs. They could be the kind of velvet glove, whereas the United States could be the mailed fist. And at the same time, right, the, you know, the velvet glove wasn't exactly cheap either. So people have pointed this out, right, that if each side plays to its comparative advantage, the United States isn't getting as well screwed over as previous people had thought. And this requires requires you to kind of take a broad perspective, a long-term perspective, and kind of think about the general international milieu you want to live in rather than just immediate, how much bang am I getting for my buck in this specific deal? Trump doesn't take the long view. He doesn't think about his general cultural or or political milieu, right? He thinks very transactionally about what are my short-term costs here versus my short-term gains, right? So he's not going to be as placated by arguments like, well, you know, in generally in the long run, it's in everybody's interest to have this liberal international order where different actors kind of play to their comparative advantages and the result of that, right? It's it's more peaceful than if it was more of a might-make-right carrot-and-stick system. So it's not going to come to a head in July 
No. It won't come to a head in July simply because, again, there's just too many moving parts. This is not the type of thing that shifts on a dime. I mean, the other structural inefficiency, right, of EU common foreign security policy is just compared to any other issue area. You have actors, doesn't matter how big they are militarily or economically, they can unilaterally veto stuff. Recently, we saw this Romania, Czech Republic, and I think it was Hungary said, no, nah, you know, we're not going to issue a you know unified statement on the U.S. moving its embassy to Jerusalem. The EU is not NATO. The overlap is almost complete, right, in terms of the member states in both. And so this is something that has to be taken into account is how much many more veto actors there are when it comes to common foreign and security policy. I think the, the difference between the NATO issue and the Iran issue is is the Iran issue comes to a head quite quickly via the kind of sanctions that the Trump administration deploys. I mean, if there are severe secondary sanctions that make it extremely difficult for European companies to have access to the American banking system, then the European countries will capitulate pretty quickly because they don't have a choice. But I think that's why, I mean, if we sort of try and stack up all the different scenarios that would mean that Europe would somehow step in. So one is a complete transformation of Angela Merkel into this diplomatic superstar who's able to sort of play the game that she simply has not played before. She's a very cautious politician who looks at domestic politics first and foremost. So one is her transformation, unlikely. Um, The second one is that the European Union or European governments would get together, as Aaron said, difficult, and have a common decision, for instance, to compensate companies that are penalised by continuing to have commercial relations with Iran. That's a lot of money. Are they likely to do that? Would it be an incentive for companies to keep doing the business? I don't think so. So that's another huge if. And the NATO thing is, I mean, it's not likely that these countries are all going to start spending enough. There has been a shift there, which is that nobody's now talking about a separate European defence initiative that's not within NATO. So that has moved. But we have to assume that a more constant factor in this whole discussion is relative inaction on the part of Europeans and what are the implications of that. That's the more likely scenario. So can we just briefly touch on Israel in this? Because Netanyahu gave that sort of TED Talk style thing in which he said that the uh, the Iranians had already breached the terms of the deal. And Back in 2003. Amazing. <laughs> he didn't give the talk in 2003. He gave no, the I'm talk. saying they breached yeah, the yeah. deal. In but he, he gave the talk a couple of weeks before Trump pulled the plug on it. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, other Europeans tried to persuade Trump not to do it. So just looked at, and this is speaking as a genuine outsider here, just looked at from reading the newspapers, it looks like Trump went with Netanyahu over Europe. Was that too crude? I think that he he went with Israel and Saudi Arabia over Europe. And I think that's a, a really is an added factor in this because of what Saudi Arabia is. Yeah, because of what's happened in Saudi Arabia over the last, well, since the turn of the year and the purge of the royal family, certain members of the royal family. And I, I think one of the reasons why it's somewhat misleading then to think about what Trump has done in terms of his America First rhetoric is that it actually is prioritising the America's predominant alliances in the Middle East, so with Israel and Saudi Arabia, its two principal allies, over its European allies. And that's why I think that this is, a, this is a, a very big moment, because you could read what the Obama administration did in 2015 as the exact opposite, because obviously the Israeli government and the Saudi government then were opposed, bitterly opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. And the Obama administration went with working with Russia and the European Union states to reach the deal. And now... Trump administration confrontational with Russia about this question, at least the position that Russia has adopted thus far. As I say, I think there might have been some movement in the last few days or so and saying our alliances with Israel and Saudi Arabia 
actually at this moment over this issue are more important to us than our alliances with the European states. One of the things that Trump has done, which as he has pointed out, other people have said they would do but didn't do, is move the embassy mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. So in this whole period, when people look back on it, I mean, who knows how they'll look back on it, is that a really significant event? Or is that just a kind of symbol of these underlying shifts? I mean, it's, it clearly actually, had very serious yeah. consequences when it happened. And yeah. I would actually take the question and kind of challenge the premise a little bit. I think it is a symbol, but I think the symbol itself is very important. Symbols in politics can be incredibly crucial, right? Even if you can't appoint to necessarily material shifts, right, say in the balance of power or economic prosperity or something like this right off the bat. So despite protests that this is, you know, doesn't change possible futures in East Jerusalem as being the center of a Palestinian state, symbolically, when you're talking about Jerusalem, which is kind of God, I'm using a lot of bargaining theory language today. It's kind of an indivisible good, right? An indivisible good is something that once you split it up, has no value anymore, right? Like I always question why Solomon's splitting the baby. Why would that have been, why would one of the the fake mother want half a baby, right? Babies are disgusting enough as it is. Then you cut them in half. They're even, right? A baby's an indivisible good. Jerusalem's basically the baby. And so any kind of sign that you're carving Jerusalem up, especially outside of a context in which you're doing tit for tat, is a sign that ultimately, right, one side is going to get something of no value, and the other side is going to get something of total value. In this case, divine Old Testament <laughs> type, type stuff, value, not really commensurate with a lot of other side deals that you could make to try to placate. So I think it's both symbolic, and because it's symbolic, it's incredibly important. So I took from that that if you run bargaining theory through the Old Testament, it doesn't come out. Solomon comes out way less wise, actually, is what happens. Uh, Yeah. My head is spinning. (laughs) I'm just, I'm wondering whether, I mean, there's obviously been a change here, and part of it is a change in rhetoric, but a willingness on the part of the US to pursue its interests and its privileged relationships in a single-minded way at the expense of other broader alliances. That doesn't seem new to me. I mean, when the US decided to go into Iraq some time ago now, it knew very clearly that it was going to divide horribly the Europeans. And some backed it, some didn't. A watershed moment for Europe, old versus new Europe. I mean, that was catastrophic consequences for its European ally as a whole. Didn't stop the US deciding what it wanted to do. So is it that we're being struck most of all by a more open and more sort of brazen, you know, brazen exercise of, of interests and selecting of different partners. But that doesn't reflect some major new shift in the underlying so say, I mean, I mean, it's been in US legislation passed by Congress since some point in the middle of the 1990s that the US embassy should move to Jerusalem. Each president since Clinton, Bush, Obama have all said effectively that they see Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So you could interpret Trump's actions as simply putting his action where American rhetoric has been for a long time, and indeed where American law actually is on this. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter in symbolic terms, because actually doing it shows that you're not acknowledging there might be reasons for restraint. But does it fundamentally change the American position on what the future of a Palestinian state should be in relation to Israel, I'm not really convinced it does. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So this is where we're going to have to shift to Korea. And I can't do a link, so let's just talk about the summit. Last night, this is Wednesday morning, Trump indicated that it might not happen that's after the North Koreans indicated that it might not happen. And there is a kind of game of chicken going on here. No one wants to be the one who pulls the plug, but everyone has to be prepared to pull the plug. And so they're each trying to sort of uh, lay the ground to make it possible to blame the other if it doesn't happen. But who do you think has got most to lose if it doesn't happen now, from now? We've seen he, that these absolutely absurd medals have been printed <laughs> with Trump on one side and Kim on the other. Um, and as that guy who I think is known as BBC Dad now, that guy who, <laughs> who his kids came in when he was giving his expert commentary on Korea, but he tweeted to say that the mistake they made on the Kim side is they put the supreme leader or something, whereas they should have put Orwellian gangster leader. Mm. So that's not good if it doesn't happen. Oh, yeah, those stupid looking coins. That's what I meant, coins, not medals, yeah. I still want one, not for like, because I think it's a good one. But anyhow, my answer to who's the biggest loser possibly in all of this would be South Korea, not North Korea or the United States. The South Koreans, well, I biggest think, loser if it doesn't happen. If it doesn't happen. They were the biggest influential factor trying to organize all of this. And Moon and, and a lot of South Koreans are terrified, right, of the prospect of war on the peninsula, which is why you had 70 to 80% of people polled right approving of the summits when you had views of Trump turning around and so on and so forth. But the, again, I think the problem here is just like I was saying, when it comes to Iran and the United States, there's a misperception of what's going on where the misperception is, you know, does Iran have offensive intentions or defensive intentions, right? One side believes one thing, one side believes the other. Here, I think both sides, North Korea and the United States, were coming at this with the presumption that they were in the driver's seat, that they were bargaining from the position of strength. Trump, I think, presumed that his harsh rhetoric in terms of promising fire and fury, and I think also his signaling over Iran, had really rattled the North Koreans and had gotten them to the bargaining table. The North Koreans, on the other hand, perceived, well, now we have a thermonuclear weapon and we have an array of missiles that aren't terribly accurate, but we could probably do a fair amount of damage to U.S. military bases in the Pacific and possibly the continental United States as well. And uh, Kim Jong-un even said, you know, now we've gotten that established, we can start focusing more on economic and diplomatic issues, right? So they thought that they had crossed a real significant threshold in terms of securing their regime from American attack. And again, this is a bad thing, right? When you have both sides coming in with probably too great of an expectation of what they can get, you know, the prospect is not so great for a bargain. I think actually Trump probably has more to lose than the North Koreans. I think the North Koreans now do perceive that they are, you know, more secure than they've been in a while. And that actually, despite the high levels of sanctions that are put on the North Korean regime, they've survived much worse in the past, in the 1990s. And to go back to that earlier question about Iran and regime change, so yeah. the Pompeo doctrine seems to be pro-regime change in Iran. And then 
part of the difficulty here is that John Bolton talked slightly loosely about the Libyan option, which could mean two things. It could mean Libya giving up its weapons, or it could mean Gaddafi being lynched in the streets. But that forced Trump to say regime change is not what we're talking about here. So regime change kind of is what we're talking about with Iran. But in this one, the summit won't work if that's what they think. So that's now been taken off the table. But again, I'm not sure how these things work, but it's there seems to be a bit of a mixed message. There's an incredible mixed message. So there's several mixed messages going on here. One is just different messages coming from different members of the Trump administration, which I think is nothing new. The bigger mixed message globally is if you get a pretty secure nuclear weapons second strike capability, as perhaps North Korea has done, we'll agree to a summit with you, which you've wanted for a really long time. We'll make all these concessions about, you know, holding joint military drills with our South Korean allies ahead of time without really asking you to give up anything. This is why I think Trump has signaled that he has more to lose than North Koreans. And we'll make you rich. And we'll make you rich. We'll make you as rich as the South Koreans. That's That's right. That's rich. That's right. Whereas if you're Iran and you agree to not pursue nuclear weapons for at least 10 to 15 years, then you're in the doghouse and you're treated terribly. So it's like, why would anybody considering, well, should I, you know, kind of try to, you know, get rid of my nuclear weapons program or should I push to get something as fast as I possibly can do a crash program? I think there's a fundamental difference. And I think the North Korean leadership probably capable of understanding it is there's no equivalent of Israel in the North Korea scenario. And I think the other thing on the North Korea side is, is the importance of China in this. Because obviously what's also been going on over the last few months since the last time that we talked about it is a trade confrontation between the United States and China that escalated and now looks like it's coming back down again. Indeed, some people are now even criticising Trump for being too soft in terms of dealing with China. So you could have looked at it as Trump had gambled quite a lot that China was going to be able to deliver something on North Korea, hence he was willing to back down on trade. So in that sense, he probably has got something to lose Mm -hmm. in this respect if the summit doesn't go ahead because then he's accommodated on China without getting any reward for it from what he was hoping for on North Korea. But is there a kind of triangular sort of thing going on there? So between the US, China and North Korea, is there a sort of a tit for tat? You know, the Chinese relationship with the US would be what if the summit goes ahead in North Korea it would placate the, the Chinese or it wouldn't? I don't pretend to understand all the bargaining dynamics of what's going on here. I just think that you can't isolate out the US, North Korea, South Korea situation without bringing China into the picture. And if you look at the things that Trump said when he first came into office, when he backed away from announcing that China was a currency manipulator, which he promised to do on the very first day in office, his whole rhetoric was about we need their help over North Korea. So I think that in his mind, at least, that these issues have been tied together since the beginning. So I've got two more questions. One is for Helen, but anyone else? Um, And then the other one is for everyone. So the the one for Helen is one of the things, and you've taught us this, one of the things that connects the international order is oil. And I was reading an article in the Times today, this Wednesday, about the rhetoric and actions coming from the Trump administration about sanctions, not just against Iran, but also now against Venezuela too. One of the effects of which is to continue what we've seen recently, which is a ratcheting up of the oil price. And the conclusion of this somewhat hawkish article was that the only person who benefits from that is Putin, that the Putin regime is very much tied to the oil price. When oil goes up, Putin is stronger. So one of the consequences of this whole strategy is to strengthen Putin. Oil price moves around a lot, but it does seem to be on an upward path. Is that right, that actually one of the knock-on effects of this, of a strengthening oil price, is you know, some, some regimes really do hang on that. I think that 
yes, that they do. The reason, in some sense, why, in, at least in the short term, that Venezuela is in such a disastrous state is because of the collapse in the price of oil from the middle of 2014. I would say that of the you know the world's three principal oil producers at the moment, the United States, Saudi Arabia and Russia, the one that most, those three, that most needs a rise in the price of oil is actually Saudi Arabia for its own internal reasons and because of the reforms that Mohammed bin Salman wants to push, not least an IPO listing for Aramco, the Saudi oil company. I think the other thing we, that we should bear in mind is that the whole issue of the ability of the Obama administration to put that sanctions regime in place that brought Iran to the negotiating table to make the Iran nuclear deal possible in the first place is, I think, almost certainly dependent on the fact that the United States had shale oil and had gone back to producing a a really significant amount of oil again from about 2011 onwards. It was because of American capacity that it was possible to persuade the Europeans in the first place that you could take Iran's oil off the market and still have a price of oil that the Europeans could bear. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that was true, because I think that some of the Eurozone's difficulties in 2011-12 have got something to do with the price of oil, because at that point it was over $100 a barrel. We should say today it's above 80, it's between 80. Well, on the Americans, the WTI one, it's about 72. On the European one, Brent, it's about 80. But I think the point is that what happens to the price of oil doesn't just affect the domestic economies of Western economies, it doesn't just affect the fiscal position of oil-producing states, not the United States, but certainly Russia and Saudi Arabia and countries like um, Venezuela. It actually affects also the bargaining power of different states over this issue because if you end up with a situation in which Iran's oil is taken off the market in any significant respect... That is something that the Americans can withstand easier than the Europeans can withstand. Helen described there the Iran deal as essentially the Obama administration's deal. But you described it earlier as something that the EU could claim a lot of credit for, specifically Cathy Ashton, who was the EU foreign representative. Is it actually the Obama's administration's deal or can the EU claim that it was in some sense their deal? I mean, not many people have actually heard of Cathy Ashton or remember her, but she was, it was the big part of her job to secure that. It was her great achievement. It depends who you ask, to be honest. Whether you ask a European or an American. And some people would say it was Putin's deal. Yeah. Yeah, You you would say that. No, I don't say that. (laughs) There's also this kind of EU3 sort of, you know, um, grouping. So, you know, as she left, Cathy Ashton sort of had this as a great thing. Yeah, it was the done. great feather in her cap, wasn't it? And she was much mocked and derided, who is this person? And she right. said, well, look, I've done this. That's right. And one of the reasons was they said, precisely because people haven't heard of her, she was a very uncontroversial figure mm. to be dealing with these sort of issues and was able to do it in a sort of very down-to-earth way. But realistically, you know, the idea that this would have been led by the Europeans rather than by the Obama administration is just not a, a realistic thing to say. So... The fact that she may have taken the lead in some parts of the negotiations, yes. Was the deal itself dependent on her actions rather than those of a US administration? No. Okay, so that does then lead to this bigger final question. Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece at the weekend, despairing a lamentation. He was one of the great cheerleaders for the Obama administration and just saying that whole legacy has has been destroyed. The, the great achievement, if you want to put it in those terms, of what Trump has done in his less than a year and a half in office, is he's taken everything that Obama did and he has just torn it up. 
including in international relations, amazingly quickly. And does that mean, and this goes back to where we started, that it was actually much more fragile than it looked? I mean, something that can be trashed so quickly doesn't look like such an achievement anyway. The feeling of this is there's nothing left. I mean, it's just like it's sort of mist that just evaporated and it's gone. Um, and those eight years, Tanasi Coates wrote this recent book, We Were Eight Years in Power, it's a similar kind of lamentation from the point of view of American racial politics. But that, you know, that amazing eight years, however you think of it, just seems like something that was almost a mirage. Is there anything left of it? And how has Trump managed to trash it so quickly? I'll take a first shot. So it's a structural problem with American politics, right? As you get a more and more partisan polarized environment, when you have a situation where government is not unified, right? So the president and the Congress are of different parties, and that's become more common as time has gone on. Increasingly, right, the Congress is not going to want to give the president anything that he wants, strictly for political reasons, right? As McConnell said early on, right, our mission is going to be to try to befuddle and foil the Obama administration at every single turning point. And that would be for political gain, right? It would give the Obama administration the reputation that they couldn't do anything. And furthermore, even when you have kind of split, divided government, you have maybe a Democratic House, a Republican Senate, uh, the use of the filibuster has grown so much that you can have minority parties checking a lot of what wants to be done. So you get amazing gridlock in Congress. So what's the temptation for any executive, especially modern American presidents whose expectation levels in the public are incredibly high for them to do something about everything, right? They're expected to be responsible for the economy and foreign affairs and so on and so forth. Or in Obama's case, turn back the rising of the tide. Right, exactly. So you've got to do something. So that something is going to be increasingly policy-oriented executive orders and executive agreements rather than treaties with countries overseas, rather than working through the legislative process. And the legislative process is what allows you to put in fences or gates around policies to protect them in the long term. When you're just doing something as an executive agreement, that can just be overdone by the next executive, right? And so we're going to see that in an increasing amount. So to come back to what Helen said at the beginning, reversed your position, Obamacare was a legislative accomplishment. And it's the one bit that's hanging in there. On that point, I think that it's not at all surprising that's the one bit that's hanging in there because of the fact it was done by legislation. I mean, I think that the the point on the Sullivan argument is actually... I, mean, I read that part of, the, of his article about foreign policy with literal disbelief because he have two paragraphs when he discusses Obama's foreign policy in the Middle East without the word Syria appearing once. I mean, you know, there was this assumption that runs through that that Obama was this great foreign policy president and he was, you know, remaking the Middle East by the Iran nuclear deal. The fact is, is that Obama's foreign policy was just as disastrous in terms of outcomes in relation to intention as the Bush administrations have been. You know, take from Iraq, from the Bush administrations to Syria, but obviously the, Libya was another failure in this respect, is, is you have a, a president that embarked upon indirect regime change in Syria using the domestic rebels backed by various of the US's Middle Eastern allies, not least Saudi Arabia, to try to remove Assad from power. And not only did that fail, it hasn't happened, but at certain points along the way, we had a self-proclaimed caliphate across significant bits of territory in the Middle East in three different countries. We have the resurgence of Russian influence in the Middle East, such that it now looks like when any Middle Eastern leader wants to do something, like including Netanyahu, he goes off to Moscow first and gets Putin's permission for it. 
we've got Turkey looking like it's more Russian ally than it's than it is an American ally when Turkey's a member of, of NATO. There just isn't any way of spinning this story unless somehow you're Andrew Sullivan <laughs> into some success that then Donald Trump has to knock down. I don't think Trump's got anything to do with it. It's just playing out the absolute failure of Obama's foreign policy. So it wasn't, that, it wasn't I, fragile, it was actually already failed. It was already failed. I mean, I'm not personally blaming Obama for that, and there's any number of reasons why it happened that aren't just about Obama, but I think the way in which people cannot see clearly the nature of the Obama presidency in relation to foreign policy is part of the reason they then can't understand why it all falls over so easily. And I think it's also why we tend to maybe play out what Trump is doing as if he's dismantling something that was a, you know, an enormous edifice. If that wasn't there in the first place, then what he's doing is not so revolutionary either. And so the, the understanding of Trump through Obama and Obama through Trump is really important. I think we tend to overplay greatly what Obama did, which then means we exaggerate greatly what we think Trump is doing by trying to you know, tear it up. And it goes back to Aaron's point, symbols really matter. There was an incredible symbolic power to the Obama presidency. And there is a deep sort of symbolic shift to the Trump presidency, not least in Tanahassee Coates's terms, you know, this absolute change in the, the language of race and racial politics in America. But foreign policy is not just to be framed in those terms. There are real interests, real long-term structural factors at work here. And American presidents don't have that much power. Well... Especially, I mean, they do and they don't. They do and they don't. So the American president has an enormous amount of power over U.S. foreign policy. But in U.S. foreign policy, right, you have sovereign state actors on the other side who also get a vote in what happens. And it's much harder to control the foreign policy agenda than it is to control the domestic politics agenda, right? I mean, the Bush administration came into office and their main emphasis was going to be on rolling back state building activities by the Clinton administration, right? Because Clinton was yicky. And the Balkans were seen as, you know, this exercise in moral what hazard. What is yicky? It's like yucky or gross, right? You know? um, anyway, uh, and, you know, but then 9-11 happens, which really couldn't have seen coming. And then you undergo the biggest state building exercise since uh, 1945. Foreign policy is very hard to predict. I think the other thing about Obama is that, especially in foreign policy, his rhetoric really was detached from a lot of his actions, right? So we would talk about Reinhold Niebuhr being his favorite foreign policy thinker, this Christian realist who talked about man as being basically fallen. And because of that, you need to be very, very cautious and humble in what you think you can accomplish, especially in foreign affairs. Talking about this in his, his famous book, right, The Irony of American History. Most of Obama's actions, as hell as it, right, they, they're not, nobody would say, oh, yeah, that's clearly Reinhold Niebuhr's influence on that decision. N not at all. We did an earlier episode which was all about oil, and we'll tweet the link to that. We also did one a while back where we talked in more detail about what's going on in Venezuela and how that relates to relations between America, Russia, and the rest of the world, and we'll tweet the link to that one too. Next week, we're going to get back to domestic politics. We keep going back and forth. And the week after that, we're going to be talking about Italy, which is the most fascinating story at the moment, and we keep itching to talk about it, and let's hope it's still going in two weeks' time. I think it will be. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Do what you did last night, it's much more fun. Mm -hmm. So Helen and I dodged the Washington Post journalist, not very successfully. <laughs> Before dodging the Washington Post, listen to David talking about his book, very engagingly with John Norton. My book is available from all good bookshops. <laughs> I tried some of this new uh, beard oil that my wife got me, which is her way of saying that my face could be less scratchy and smell better. Um, 
Actually, she's told me that directly, so the oil was just more of a follow-up to that point. But I think it's... I, I think I smell okay right now. Before and after. Well, mainly after. No. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.